This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Amen. Good morning, ABC. Um, how many actually went to the Tumpeth last night? Can we have a show of hands? Wow. Did you have a good time? Yes. Boogie on down, yeah? Yes. To folk music, yeah? <laughs> Great. This morning's topic is hell. <laughs> and that in no way expresses my opinion of folk music. I can assure you, hell cannot get possibly close to my attitude towards folk music. If you guys had been playing Gestaffelstein, I would have been there. But as it was, I was not. Okay? Now, the reason I'm preaching on hell this morning is simple. I've never heard it preached. I've been a Christian since 1975. I've never heard it preached. I've heard it mentioned, but I've never heard it preached. So I thought it's about time that I looked into the Word and preached on this topic. And at the end of the day, if there is a place where people who don't believe in Jesus Christ will suffer the eternal torment of fire, then actually that should be our main message, shouldn't it? We should preach it all the time. Imagine what it's going to be like on the day of judgment. Non-Christian friends, non-Christian family will be able to say to us, hold on, you made us bacon baguettes on a Sunday morning and you told us how to manage our finances, but you never told us we're facing this. I'm going to burn you forever. Why didn't you mention it? And the reason we've never mentioned it, I think, is, is twofold. First of all, we're embarrassed by it. We're embarrassed at the thought that Jesus loves you and if you don't love him back, he'll burn you forever in a furnace. That's a difficult message to sell. And the other reason is this. It undermines our faith. We can't reconcile the idea of a loving God with eternal punishment, so we don't go there. We shy away from it, okay? But what we're going to do this morning, we're actually going to look at the Bible forensically, okay? There's two ways of looking at the world. If you look at the world forensically, you look for evidence, and then that should lead to a conclusion. And if the evidence changes, maybe the conclusion changes. Sometimes people have a conclusion, and they look for evidence to support it. It's a different way of working. If you've ever seen uh, forensic detectives or NCIS, they work forensically, okay? And you might think the police always look forensically at things. No, they don't. I worked with the police for years, and time after time, they would have a conclusion and then look for evidence to support it. I remember one notorious murder, I was told, Ian, this offence could only have been committed by a woman. And I thought, what, was, were they beaten to death with a rolled-up copy of Women's Own or something? I mean... <laughs> What, what do you mean women don't commit murders? Most of the miscarriages of justice occur because the police have a conclusion and they look for the evidence to support it rather than seeing where the evidence leads. And the trouble is Christians are notorious for having conclusions, okay? Because we have a vested interest in our traditions. And so we look in the Bible to support a conclusion. But we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to look at the evidence and see what the evidence says. It's interesting that Phil last week preached about evidence-based belief because this actually is an example of that. Okay, then, if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Isaiah. And I'm reading from chapter 14, and it's verse 9 to verse 19. On your account, Sheol beneath us is a stir to greet your arrival. To honour you, he rouses the ghosts of all the rulers of the world. He makes all the kings of the nations get up from their thrones. Each has something to say. And what they will say to you is this. So you too have been brought to nothing like ourselves. You too have become like us. 
Your magnificence has been flung down to Sheol with the music of your harps. Underneath you a bed of maggots and over you a blanket of worms. How did you come to fall from the heavens, day star, son of dawn? How did you come to be thrown to the ground? You who enslaved the nations? You who used to think to yourself, I will climb up to the heavens and higher than the stars of God. I will set my throne. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will climb to the top of the thunderclouds. I will rival the most high. What? Now you've fallen to Sheol, to the very bottom of the abyss. All who see you will gaze at you, will stare at you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble and overthrew kingdoms, who made the world a desert and leveled cities, who never to his captives opened the prison gates? All the kings of the nations lie honorably, each in his tomb. But you have been expelled from your grave like loathsome dung, buried under the slaughtered, under those cut down by the sword and thrown on the stones of the ditch like a mangled carcass. The reason I wanted to read these verses is because these verses actually illustrate the problem we've got. The King James Bible has the word hell in it 54 times. And three of those words are actually in this verse. But this has nothing at all to do with eternal suffering or pain or hellfire or anything else. The word that's used three times here is sheol. It's a Hebrew word, and Sheol just means death, or the place of death. When this Bible was translated out of the Hebrew into the Greek, and then from the Greek into the Latin in the 5th century, the person who translated it chose to translate one verse, verse 12, which means, in the original, literally what it has here, day star, son of the dawn. The person who translated it decided to use one Latin word, and that word was Lucifer. And from that day to this, people have said that Lucifer is the name of the devil. No, it's not. That's just a word in Latin. This has nothing to do with the devil. This is a poem on tyrants. It's about Saddam Hussein. It's about Napoleon. It's about Genghis Khan. It's about all of those people who rule the earth and aspire to be gods, but in the end they die and they go down to Sheol like everybody else. Suddenly we find that we've created a different theology because of a mistranslation. We don't know the name of the devil. Let me tell you this. It ain't Lucifer. We know that for definite. And we know this isn't about the devil. Why? Because in verse 16, there's a reference to this as being a man. Okay, we're talking about a person. When you look in the Old Testament, you find that the word Sheol is written 31 times. And it's never a place of torment, and it's never a place of torture. It's a place of some slumber, of sleeping. It's illustrated best in 1 Samuel, where we find that King Saul requests the witch of Endor to raise up the spirit of the prophet Samuel. Samuel has died, and Saul, because he's an idiot, wants to hear what Samuel has to say. And he raises the spirit of Samuel. And Samuel isn't in torment. He's not suffering. All he says is this. Why have you raised me from my sleep? And then he prophesies to Saul. And then he goes back to Sheol. Because Sheol is not a place of suffering, the Jews don't believe in hell. Because they look to the Old Testament and the Old Testament only. In the New Testament, it's interesting. In Ephesians 4, when Jesus dies, he goes to Sheol. And there it says in Scripture, he releases the captives. So when he's raised from the dead, all of the righteous people who had died and went to Sheol are raised from the dead and go with him to be with him in heaven. The nearest the Old Testament gets 
to any sort of judgment is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where we read this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Because it's not a terribly certain scripture, the Jews in Jesus' time, some, the Pharisees, believed in the resurrection, the others, the Sadducees, didn't. And there's an argument between the two of them. Jewish teaching today is that there will be a resurrection. And on the day of resurrection, everybody will be raised from the dead, and those who have done good things and been a righteous person will go to heaven, and those who haven't, they will be shamed. They'll be exposed. That rabbi who thought was a righteous man and turned out to have killed somebody, guess what? That'll be opened up and everybody will see it. That old lady who you thought was a really good person, turns out she was a monster. It'll all come out in the open. But there's no eternal punishment at all in the Old Testament. When we look at the New Testament, we find that there are three words that the King James Bible chooses to translate as hell. And the first of them is Hades. And it's mentioned ten times in the New Testament. It's mentioned four times in Revelation, twice in Acts, and four times in the Gospels. Hades is the equivalent of Sheol, but it's more than that. For the Greeks, Hades was also a person as well as a place. Hades is one of the three most important gods in the Greek religion. Zeus ruled the heavens, Poseidon ruled the sea, and Hades ruled the underworld. And the Greeks and the Romans were terrified of him. Uh, whenever they offered sacrifices to him, to their sta his statue, they wouldn't even look at it. They wouldn't even mention his name. But Hades isn't a place of, of punishment. It's actually an underground kingdom, and it's on many layers. The highest layer is called Elysium. That's where the heroes went, the philosophers, all the great men, okay? They went there, and they played Monopoly and basketball and stuff like that. And the lowest level of Hades is called Tartarus. And that word actually pops up in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. When angels sinned, God did not let them escape punishment. He sent them down to Tartarus and chained them in darkness until the day of judgment. And Tartarus in the Greek religion is a place where evil people go. They live in darkness. They live in shadows. They are maybe tormented by their memories, but there is no torture there. Okay? So Hades, as far as the Greeks are concerned, is both a king and a place. And whenever Hades is mentioned in the New Testament, it has a similar function, just as a place for the dead. However, when the Greeks and the Romans came into the church, do you know what they did? They brought their gods with them. And suddenly you start finding from the third and the fourth century onwards, you have this depiction of Satan as the Lord of hell. And they begin to produce pictures of the devil enthroned in hell with Poseidon's fork. And his angels are torturing people. And that image has come into our culture. It's part of our consciousness. You see it in movies. You see it in films. You see it on church walls. And it's all a complete pagan lie. The devil isn't the king of hell. Hades was a god that the Greeks believed in. He's not a real god. He doesn't actually exist. What the Bible teaches is that the devil is the god of this world. He is called the god of the earth. He's called the prince of the air. The Bible teaches the devil has access to heaven, and that will be curtailed at some time in the future when there's a war in heaven, and the devil will be thrown out of heaven, 
And in Revelations, there's that really scary line that says, Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come among thee, and he is filled with great rage. I don't want to be here when that happens. But at the moment, guess what? He lives on the earth. When he tempted Jesus, what did he say to Jesus? He said, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, these are mine to give to whom I will. And if you will but bow down and worship me, I will give you them all. Jesus didn't call him out and say, you're a liar. What Jesus said was, you know, you should worship only the Lord your God and serve only him. But guess what? For 2,000 years, we have been trying to wrest the kingdoms from the devil and give them to Jesus Christ. That's what the last 2,000 years have been about. Isn't that what happened in 1939? Didn't Adolf Hitler, as an emissary of the devil, snatch Germany from the Protestant Reformation and turn it into something horrific? And 60 million people had to die. And 6 million Jews were thrown into ovens before finally we won back Germany and Europe for the cause of the gospel. What about the war with communism? It didn't end in a confrontation. Because if it had, there'd be no life on earth. But that was a war with a demonic enemy. And what are we doing now? Fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Aren't they demonic entities? Isn't this the devil trying to re-grab the whole world and bring it into his control? And that's why I don't believe in pacifism. You're in this fight whether you like it or not. And you have to choose sides. And if you don't choose the side of Christ, guess what? You're in the enemy camp. If you've got to go to war, you'd rather go to war with pacifists against you rather than warriors, wouldn't you? Because they're not going to fight. They're going to be easy to kill. I just don't believe in pacifism. So the devil does not rule hell, okay? It is not a kingdom. Forget all those images. But that change of the word from hell to Hades changes the meaning of a lot of verses. For example, take Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we think, yes, the devil can't overcome us, and the demons can't overcome us, and we're really powerful, and we're going to sort them out. But the word isn't hell. It's Hades. It just means death. In the ancient world, as in the modern world, graveyards were locked at night. What the words actually mean is this. The dead cannot be kept in the ground because the gospel released them to eternal life. And the church has the gospel. So therefore, we have the power over death. And we can release people through the gospel to eternal life. That's all it means. Nothing demonic, nothing to do with the devil. It's just the power of the gospel over the church. The other word that's used in the New Testament, which is translated 11 times, as hell, and once in the letters, is the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna means the Valley of Hinnom. It was a little valley just outside of Jerusalem. It's actually a suburb of Jerusalem now. And it had a terrible reputation. It was where, for a time, the Jews worshipped Moloch by taking their children and having them burned alive on the altar. Uh, King Asaz and King Manasseh, his grandson, did it. It's mentioned in 2 Chronicles. It was regarded as a place of horror. The, the poor people would bury their dead there. They dumped their rubbish there. There was a, a perpetual fire going there all the time. And if you grew up in a Welsh Valley any time over the last hundred years, you would have a tip, okay, that burned all the time. We had one in Abertillery, and uh, when it rained, steam would come off it. And at night, you could see it burning. 
I lived there 20 years. For 20 years, that pit burned. It just wouldn't go out. You couldn't put it out. In fact, I remember about 10 years ago, just off the M4 at Hendy, there was a fire in a pit there, or an old mine, and it burned for years, okay? So that's the image, the Valley of Hinnom. But these are the words that Jesus says about that. If you call someone a fool, you'll be guilty enough to go to Gehenna. It is better that one part of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you make a disciple twice as fit for Gehenna as yourself. So he's using this term in relation to instructions to believers. In fact, the longest quote is here, Mark chapter 9, verse 43 to 50, and I'll read the whole thing out just to unwrap this. If your hand makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to lose a hand and have eternal life than to have two hands and go to Gehenna, whose fire never stops. If your foot makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to lose a foot and have eternal life than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. If your eye makes you sin, cut it out. It is better for you to have only one eye and enter God's kingdom than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna where their worm does not die, nor their fire goes out. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, you can't make it good again. Have salted yourselves and live in peace with each other. So what is going on here? Is Jesus actually saying that if you look at something that is sinful, like he senders, you then have to <laughs> cut out your eyes? Is he really saying that? I've never looked at EastEnders, ever. But I have watched Family Guy, so <laughs> should, I, should I go into the kitchen and use a spoon after this service? If you sin with your hand, if you sin with your feet, should you really cut your hand off and cut your feet off? Is Jesus actually telling us this? There was one guy in the early church, a church father, a chap called Oregon. He actually took this literally, and you can work out what part of his body he felt offended God when I tell you he had himself castrated. <laughs> and the other church father said, you're an idiot. It's, it's, it's non-literal. It's hyperbole. It's, it's a non-literal exaggeration to make a point. And he finally said, oh, yeah, you're right. I was young. I was an idiot. But I'm now going to pay the price for the rest of my life. <laughs> and he joined a choir, and he became very, <laughs> he became very popular. So the instruction, first of all, it's to us. He's not talking to non-Christians here. He's talking about us. The instruction is non-literal hyperbole, okay? You know, at some point, Wales and England are going to play each other in a match, aren't they? Okay? And you're going to hear probably someone on the Welsh side saying, we're going to bury them. When you hear that, you don't really believe, do you, that on the day of the match, the Welsh team will bring out an M60 machine gun, gun down the English team, then get some shovels and bury them in the ground. <coughs> you don't really believe that. You know that that's hyperbole. It's a non-literal exaggeration to make a point. So if this is hyperbole by Jesus, a non-literal instruction, how on earth can the punishment for a non-literal instruction be literal? He's trying to make a point. He's talking to me and you, and what he's actually saying is this. This is serious. I want you to be ruthless with yourself. I want you to be good disciples, okay? I don't want you to be laid back and lazy. I want you to make sure that you live your life the way I live my life, without compromise, Okay? This has nothing to do with eternal punishment. Okay? In fact, that little phrase, 
their worm does not die, nor their fire go out. It's actually a quote from the last verse in Isaiah, which reads, Whoever goes out of the city will see the dead bodies of those who sinned against me. The worms eating those bodies will never die, and the fires burning them will never go out. It will be horrible to anyone who sees it. Isaiah 66, verse 24. It's a poetic verse where God imagines himself walking out of Jerusalem, and his enemies are in the valley of Hinnom, and they've been destroyed. And he says poetically, their worm will never die, their fire will never go out. It's a poetic illustration. It's a metaphor. It is non-literal. Jesus quotes it to make a point when talking to his disciples, to me and you. In the Old Testament, it's a reference to the enemies of God. Jesus is saying, don't be my enemy. Be my follower. Be ruthless with yourselves. And if you don't believe that, if you believe this is a reference to eternal punishment, Remember, he's talking to you, and spoons and knives are available, okay? <laughs> you will burn in ever, forever in hell if you don't do what he says. But before you do that, can I suggest you see a psychiatrist? Because there's clearly something wrong with you, okay? In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus said to his disciples, Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't go to heaven. And they said, what? And then he said, just to clarify the issue, Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot go to heaven. And scripture says many of his disciples left him from that point on. They could not follow him. Was he actually saying that we should engage in cannibalism? No. He was making a point, a non-literal hyperbole point, okay? He's talking in terms of hyperbole. And I think we get it there. So we should also get it here in Mark. And all the other references of Gehenna are similar. One exception, James chapter 3, verse 6. James, Jesus' brother, says this. The tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. Do you really believe that when you lie or you gossip, a demon goes to Gehenna, which is now a suburb of Jerusalem, lights a taper on a little gas stove, travels across the world, and then touches you on the tongue with it? Do you really believe that? Of course not. It's an illustration of how if we gossip and we lie, we're doing the devil's work, okay? Non-literal illustrations. Gehenna is not to do with eternal punishment. However, when we look at the book of Revelations, it becomes slightly different. Let me read you out these three sections of verses. First of all, 1920. Then the beast was taken prisoner with a false prophet who had performed miracles on the beast's behalf, which had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the sea of burning sulfur. Chapter 20, verses 10 to 15. And the devil who had deceived the world was thrown into the sea of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the sea of fire. This is the second death, the sea of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the sea of fire. And then finally, chapter 21, verse 8. The penalty for cowards, for those who break their word or worship obscenities, for murderers and fornicators, for drug users, idolaters and liars, is the second death in the burning sea of sulfur. 
Here we have a, actually a definitive statement. Scripture clearly says that the beast, the false prophet, the devil and his angels will be tortured forever. They will suffer eternal punishment. The image is of a sea of burning sulfur. And we've got to ask the question, well, okay, the beast might be a human being. It's, a, it's not a male or female term in the book of Revelations. It's actually neutral, so it might be a thing. But we know the false prophet, the antichrist, the son of perdition. We know that person is a human being. So at least one human being is going to suffer eternal punishment. So we've got to ask ourselves, is anybody else going to suffer eternal punishment? Well, chapter 14, verse 10 to 12 says this in the book of Revelations. Those who receive the mark of the beast will drink the wine of God's anger. This wine is prepared with all its strength in the cup of God's anger. They will be tortured with burning sulfur before the holy angels and the lamb, and the smoke of their burning pain will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or who receive the mark of its name. This means that God's holy people must be patient. They must obey God's commands and keep their faith in Jesus. This is really disturbing. It's talking about a future event, probably in the context of a global crisis, where in order to buy food and go to Tesco and Sainsbury's, you will have to receive the mark of the beast. And, you know, this is an image that's been in movies and books and TV shows for years. But I wish people would read the Bible a little bit closely because in all the movies, people are being marked with the number 666. But the Bible explicitly says the mark of the beast is not the number of the beast. Chapter 13, verse 17 says people will either receive his mark or his name or the number. Now, the only person that would receive 666 on their body would be uh, an idiot Satanist, okay? Nobody else would do it. But the mark is not the number. And it makes sense if there's rationing across the globe because some kind of global catastrophe and there's a shortage of food. It would make sense to have some kind of mark on the forehead to allow you to get into shops, you know, you can be read by those CCTV cameras, and to have something on the back of your right hand so that when you get to the checkout, you can just put your hand across it like that. All makes perfect sense. But the consequences are horrific. If you receive the mark of the beast, you will suffer eternal punishment along with the devil and his angels and the beast and the false prophet. It's a future event. It hasn't happened yet. I hope I'm not here when it happens. But guess what? The last verse there. This means that God's holy people must be patient. They must obey God's commands and keep their faith in Jesus. That only makes sense if there actually are Christians on the earth when this event happens, okay? So just to beware, okay? Does anybody else suffer eternal punishment? Well, some people would say yes, because the scripture here says that anyone whose name was not found in the book of life, they are thrown into the burning sea of sulfur. But there's no reference to them actually suffering. In fact, we read that death and Hades were also thrown into the sea of fire. And they are not people. Death is a state. Hades is a place. Okay? So they're clearly not going to suffer eternally. And also, the reference there is to the second death. Death is annihilation. It's the cessation of life. When I read these scriptures, the evidence for me points to this. If you get the mark of the beast or you're the false prophet, you will suffer eternally. But guess what? If you're not a Christian, 
Whether you've been a good person or a bad person, guess what? You will be annihilated. You will not suffer eternal pain. And that teaching, which I believe the Bible says quite clearly, guess what? That contradicts a lot of the teaching in the church over the last 2,000 years. So it's going to be up to you whether you make up your mind on that. But that is what the evidence points to, to me. There's also another way of looking at all of this. Revelations is interesting because it shows a sequence of events. There's an asteroid as big as a mountain that hits the sea. The temperature of the world rises enormously. And then, basically, the planet bursts into flames. I mean, it's written quite clearly in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. With a roar, the sky will vanish, and the elements will catch fire and melt, and the earth and all that is on it will be burnt up. Since everything is coming to an end like this, you should be living holy and righteous lives while you wait and long for the day of the Lord to come when the sky will dissolve in flames and the elements melt in the heat. What we are waiting for is the promised, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. It's a fascinating, if scary, series of verses. But what is interesting, the word elements, and I can't even pronounce it, it's a Greek word, I'll spell it, S-T-E-O-I-C-H-E-O. That term is a military term for the rank order of soldiers. And if you've ever been to school and done chemistry, you will have been told about the periodic table, which is the list of elements. And here we have a description of the world catching fire and the elements in their rank order melting. Coincidence? I don't think so. The weird thing is, that sequence, meteorite, global temperature rising, the world catching fire, has happened before. <coughs> 250 million years ago, there was the great Permian extinction. They believe a meteorite hit the Earth. Temperatures of the oceans raised in temperature by 6 degrees C. All the methane hydrate, frozen methane, at the bottoms of the oceans was released into the air. When methane reaches a concentration of 4% in the atmosphere, it becomes combustible. They believe that the whole atmosphere of the planet burst into flames. And it burned for 10 million years. That's the coal gap. There were no trees on Earth. But what is interesting is what the effect it had on the oceans. The ocean temperatures rose by 40 degrees C. And they become filled with green sulfur bacteria that produces hydrogen sulfide gas. If you'd seen that ocean at that time, it would have stank of rotten eggs, which is what hydrogen sulfide uh, gas is, and they would have been on fire. And exactly the same description is in the book of Revelations, the burning sea of sulfur. It's there. A coincidence? Maybe. But it could be that whole description in Revelations is actually to do with what's going to happen on this planet at some time in the future. And it is only those who believe in Jesus Christ who will escape that being taken to a new earth with a new heaven, a new constellation in the skies. Either way, we know that there is a place of eternal punishment. But as far as I can see, it's just for the people who receive the mark, for the angel, his demons, and of course the beast and the false prophet. And I could leave it there. But there's one thing we haven't covered, and that's the parables. And these are really disturbing. These are the parables of Jesus. We've got the parable of the darnel. 
Son of man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all the things that cause offense and all who do evil and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Matthew 13, 41. Parable of the dragnet. This is how it will be at the end of time. The angels will appear and separate the wicked from the just to throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and grinding of teeth. Matthew 13, 49. Parable of the fruit. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the tree so that every tree which fails to produce fruit will be cut down and thrown on the fire. Matthew 3.10 Parable of the chaff, but the chaff will be burnt in a fire that will never go out. Luke 3.17 Parable of the neglectful disciples. Next he will say to those in his left hand, Go away from me with your curse upon you to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away to eternal punishment. Matthew 25 And then finally the parable of Lazarus. Luke 16, 23 to 26. Lazarus died and the angels placed him in the arms of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. He was sent to Hades and was in great distress. He saw Abraham with Lazarus in his arms and called, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to me so that he can dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am suffering in this fire. But Abraham said, remember when you lived, you had all the good things in life, but Lazarus had nothing but problems. Now he is comforted here, and you are suffering. These are really disturbing parables for two reasons. One, they're aimed at us. He's not talking to non-Christians. All of these parables are addressed to the disciples. Secondly, the language. Fire never going out, eternal punishment. Is Jesus really saying to us, that if we fail to produce the fruit, which is what this is all about, if we fail to produce the goods of living a good Christian life, that we will suffer eternal punishment? Is he really saying that? When I think I've shown that people who don't believe in Jesus are just going to get annihilated. Yeah, they'll be raised the dead, they'll be exposed for what they are, but then they get destroyed. It's a really scary thought. But I think, personally myself, the way to look at this is exactly the same as what we read in Mark. Jesus is using hyperbole. He is over-egging the pudding to shock us, to make us realize that he expects something of us, okay? You know, at the end of the day, we're not just ordinary people. When we became Christians, a responsibility fell on our shoulders. I mean... When a civilian runs away from the war, nothing happens to them. When a soldier runs away from the battle, he's put against the wall and shot. He expects something more of us. Salvation isn't for ourselves. It's actually that we might be a blessing to other people and live the kind of life that Jesus lived. But is scripture saying that if we don't do that, we'll suffer eternal punishment? Personally, I don't think so. For one simple reason. In the book of Revelations, there's this little phrase, chapter 3, verse 5. The one who overcomes will be clothed in white clothing, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Chapter 20, verse 15 says this. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the sea of fire. Chapter 13, verse 8, and also 17, verse 8 says this. Those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world were the ones who suffered. And finally, Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul actually says this, And I also beg you, fellow worker, help those women who labored in the gospel with me and with Clement and other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. There's a book of life, okay? It's been written from before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer, your name is in it. 
But the fact is this. When Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 5 of the book of Revelations, I will not blot out his name from the book of life for the one who overcomes. By definition, the one who fails to overcome, he will blot out your name. So think of it. Maybe everybody's name was in the book of life. But maybe by the way we live our lives and the things we do, by being unrighteous, by being unfruitful, maybe our name is blotted out of that book. But I think I've already showed that the people whose name are not in that book, they suffer annihilation. They do not suffer eternal punishment. It's still a terrible price to pay to call yourself a Christian and never produce the kind of life that would be pleasing to God and to find out on the day of judgment, hey, you're not going to have eternal life. You're not going to move on to the next phase of our species. But I think it would just be completely wrong to suffer eternal punishment just because you've messed up as a Christian. I just don't think it'll happen. And I don't think Jesus is saying it. He's trying to shock us again and again and again. He is a rabbi. He is a teacher. He is using this method of confrontation time and time again. Everybody he speaks to in the Gospels, he shocks it doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor, Jew or Samaritan. He shocks you with his words to wake you up. And we have become numb. A generation of numb Christians. And we read this stuff without thinking of its implications. But the word is quite clear. He expects something of us. But I don't believe for one moment that a person who loves Jesus Christ and who serves him is ever going to suffer anything except rewards and glory and blessing in the extreme. There's just one other thing I need to say before I finish. What about all those people who have never heard the gospel? Demographers tell us that about 50 billion people have been born on earth. Seven billion are alive now. How many of those people have actually heard the gospel? 10%, 20%, maybe less. What happens to all the others? Think of your, your great-auntie Glad, who was born and brought up in the Amazon, only learned to wear clothes when she went to a nursing home in Taraguayas. Will, <laughs> will she suffer annihilation because she never heard the gospel? Some preachers would say yes, okay? It's not what the Bible says. Romans chapter 2, verse 15 to 16 says this. People who have never heard of God's law, but are led by reason to do what God commands, may not actually possess his law, but they can be said to embody it. They can point to his law written on their hearts and so call a witness. That is their own conscience that will either prove them guilty or quit them on the day when, according to the gospel that I preach, God through Jesus Christ will judge all mankind. What kind of a life did Andy Glad live? Was she a blessing or was she a curse? Was she nice or was she a monster? I don't know. She's your auntie. But I'll tell you this. If she lived a life that was pleasing to God, on the day of judgment, she could actually say to God, hey, I never heard this gospel stuff. I, who's Jesus? I've never heard of it. But look at my life. Your conscience will either acquit you or condemn you on that day. So salvation is possible to people who've never heard the gospel according to the Bible, okay? But if they lived a life that is displeasing to God, they will suffer annihilation. I don't believe they'll suffer eternal punishment. So there isn't a hell as a place where the devil rules. But there is eternal punishment for a select few people. And I believe that the rest will just be annihilated. Really, for us, okay, we don't even need to think about this, okay? 
because our home is actually heaven. And on the 20th of March, I'll be talking about heaven, looking at the Bible forensically to see what it actually says. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.